Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Despite the push for federal executions in the last days of the Trump regime, there is huge momentum for the elimination of the death penalty in America. Maurice Shema joins me this week to discuss the state of capital punishment, what it means for America, and his new book on the subject, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky said you can judge a society by how well it treats its prisoners. Indian statesman Mahatma Gandhi said, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. We look further at the unprecedented five federal executions. President Trump's Justice Department is scheduled before Inauguration Day. Virginia is set to become the first state in the South to ban the death penalty. The General Assembly there officially passed the bill on Monday. It now heads to Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who has already said that he would sign it into law. That leaves 28 countries that still use capital punishment. And one of them, of course, is the U.S. That's us. I'm Maurice Shema, and I want people to understand the impact of the death penalty and take ownership of the criminal justice system as citizens and voters. Sorry, not sorry. Maurice, thank you so much for being with us. I think the best place to start this interview is to ask the question, how does America compare with the rest of the world when it comes to executions? America is sort of out of step with Europe and Canada and many countries that we consider ourselves comparable to in other ways. When you think about the countries that tend to carry out executions, it tends to be countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, and not countries that the U.S. is typically put in a category with. There's a couple of other democracies, notably Japan, that have continued to carry out the death penalty, but it really does put America in a sort of category all its own. And what do you think that says about us as people? Well, I think that it says that we have a very particular history that we have not really fully reckoned with. One of the things I explore in the book is the relationship between the contemporary death penalty and the history of lynchings, the history of racial injustice that followed the Civil War and dominated the Jim Crow South. A lot of those states, including Texas, that were part of the Jim Crow South are still the epicenter of the death penalty and the racial dynamics of who gets sentenced to death are still very troubling. And so I think that Americans have a very unique relationship to the death penalty that they have not fully understood. And the book is an attempt to try to start to unpack that. It's crazy that there was a Gallup poll that came out in late 2020 that showed support for the death penalty is at its lowest level since the 1960s. But still more than half of those surveyed were in favor of it. I mean, why is it so popular? Well, I think that it's worth drawing a line between the death penalty in the abstract and the death penalty's actual reality. So 
Americans typically, at least 50% have said that they support the death penalty. Sometimes that number has gotten up to 60-70%. But when it comes to individual cases, Americans serve on juries, they elect district attorneys, and over the last 20 years or so, the death penalty has been in tremendous decline, partially because as members of juries, we continually have said no to it. There's a lot of reasons for that that we can discuss. We've increasingly been electing district attorneys in big cities like Houston and Philadelphia who are promising to seek the death penalty less often or not at all. And that's a real sea change from 20 years ago. So I think that Americans are starting to kind of change the way they think about this. But it's very easy when a Gallup pollster calls you on the phone to just knee jerk say, oh, I think the death penalty is a just punishment and to imagine the worst, to imagine your child, your parent being murdered and how you would feel towards the person who does it. But once you take a few steps and imagine serving on a jury in a court, more and more Americans are actually willing to extend mercy to people when confronted with the actual facts of their lives. And you mentioned it before, but can you just go into it with a little bit more depth, the history of capital punishment in America? How did it start? Its origins? Has it always been a political issue? So the death penalty goes all the way back to the founding of the country. It's something that we inherited from England in the earliest days of our republic. But over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century, the relationship between legal executions and illegal mob lynchings started to blur. And throughout the course of the 20th century, the death penalty gets more and more unpopular. There's more and more questions about whether it's just. And in the 1960s, we actually get to a point where executions nearly disappear entirely. And Gallup polls show that popularity of the death penalty is in steep decline. It really seems like we're on the cusp of doing away with it altogether, just as Canada and many Western European countries are doing. But then in 1972 is this really pivotal seismic moment when the Supreme Court says that the death penalty as it's practiced right now is unconstitutional, that all the laws that we have on the books governing the death penalty have to be thrown out. And this creates a backlash. This was a moment when disparities of a race are coming to the fore, but there's also a backlash against the civil rights movement in the South. There's a real fear with crime going up that the courts are removing the ability of citizens to punish people adequately. This is the era of the movie Dirty Harry, this idea that the police are being stymied in their efforts to stop crime. And this all comes to a head with that Supreme Court decision. And there's a tremendous backlash and state legislatures throughout the country write new laws to bring the death penalty back. And the Supreme Court looks at those laws and in 1976 says that they are constitutional. And this begins what we now consider the sort of contemporary era of the death penalty. So throughout the 80s and 90s, you see the number of new death sentences go up, death rows fill up, executions start taking place, and Americans really embrace the death penalty culturally. George W. Bush runs for president in 2000, partially based on his death penalty record as governor of Texas. And we reach a kind of peak in 1999-2000, almost 100 executions in a year. And ever since then, we've been on a slide downward. So the research that I've been doing is really about trying to understand the reasons for that embrace and then the reasons for that rejection over the last 40 years. And what'd you find? Well, we turned to the death penalty at a time when crime was rising and it became a political issue. I'm in favor of the death penalty. I, uh, I used to get uh, a good deal of grief about that. I attended law school and in my criminal law class, uh, my professor said uh, that there is no evidence that the death penalty deters crime. And uh, 
And, and I argued with him. I said, how do you know? I can't believe it. I can't imagine that, that it would not affect the thinking of someone to know that if they shot a police officer, they'd be hunted down by hounds, if you will, and that they would have their life taken away from them. There had always been politics attached to the death penalty because it's a public policy issue and few things are free of that. But it became a kind of signature culture war issue. It was up there with abortion, with gun control, maybe the way we think about climate change today as something that really divided liberals from conservatives and something that everyone really shouted at each other about. And there was a period where both parties didn't want to be seen as soft on crime. And so you have Bill Clinton flying home from the campaign trail to oversee an execution in Arkansas. You have Michael Dukakis running for president and getting really lambasted over his lack of support for the death penalty. And as Americans, we've really had a moment where we felt like this was the answer to crime. We eventually discovered that it doesn't actually stop crime, that crime rates were not really meaningfully affected by the death penalty, and that it had all kinds of other damage, that the likelihood that we would execute innocent people was pretty great. There was a series of scandals in the late 90s, early 2000s, showing that it was quite likely that we had executed someone who was totally innocent. But even beyond that, there was a series of cases where we really started to reckon with almost the philosophical problems of the death penalty, the question of whether the people that we're executing are really the same people who committed the crimes given that they've been on death row for 20 years and have often reformed their lives, embraced religion, embraced a sense of redemption. Often the family members of the victims went public with the demand that the perpetrator not be executed because they felt that was even more damaging to them. All of these different factors start to come into play in the early 2000s. And in case after case, defense lawyers, and this is really what I think fascinated me the most, start to convince juries to be merciful towards those who have committed some of the worst crimes. There's one story that I tell in the book that I think is really crucial for us to all understand, which was in roughly 2008 in Houston, there was a man named Juan Quintero who went on trial for murdering a police officer. This was in Houston, which was the death penalty capital, not just of Texas, but of the United States at the time. It was widely assumed that he would get the death penalty. He was undocumented and had been deported to Mexico after being charged with sexual assaults. So he was really not sympathetic at first glance. And to this day remains very unsympathetic to most who encounter his case, but his defense lawyers managed to weave an incredibly complex portrait of him for the jury. They did a investigation in Mexico where they sent investigators throughout that country and found that he had had a brain injury as a child, that there was this trauma in his childhood, that he had struggled throughout his whole life. He was a very devout Catholic and had struggled to deal with his addiction to alcohol. And all this was not to excuse his crime or explain it away or say that he doesn't deserve to go to prison or be punished in any way, but it was just enough to give the juror a sense that this man had something in him that was is worth preserving and saving. And that's why the jury said he gets a life sentence, not a death sentence. And in case after case, you're starting to see that even as Americans might say that they support the death penalty in the abstract, they're capable of extending mercy when they have someone's life in front of them in a really rich and accurate and robust way. One of the things that strikes me 
is that support for the death penalty seems to be highest among people of faith. I guess the question is, what role does religion play in capital punishment? And how should that factor into how we approach it? It plays a really big role. Throughout the research for this book, I can't count the number of times that a prosecutor, an executioner, somebody who, at least on the record, supported the death penalty, brought up the Bible and their faith in a way that was very ambivalent. So on the one hand, there are lots of places in Christianity and Judaism where the idea of eye for an eye justice is there in the text, and you can find it. There's also a lot of talk of mercy and showing mercy towards people who are sort of the least among us. When the death penalty was revived, in the 1970s, members of the Texas legislature, legislatures around the country debated these religious ideas, and many supporters of the death penalty really used Christianity as the basis of that belief. And we're starting to see that it's now the basis for their rejection of the death penalty. In the late 90s, there was a very famous case of a woman named Carla Faye Tucker, who, like the case I mentioned before, was very unsympathetic, famously left a pickaxe in one of her victims. It was just an awful crime. And she had this very public conversion to Christianity. She went on Larry King Live. She went on some of the Christian broadcasting networks and really made the case that she had transformed herself and had accepted Christ and was not the person who had committed that crime. And she was executed under a governor, George W. Bush, who professed to also be an evangelical Christian. But I think that case really started turning the corner in faith communities in the U.S., particularly Christian communities, against the death penalty. And now the language that a lot people use when they talk about the death penalty and whether they support it or not. Christianity kind of is part of the, you know, cultural weather in America. It's part of the atmosphere for many people. And so it's the language that many people had once used to support the death penalty, and it's now the language they're using to oppose it. The Roman Catholic Church is now in total opposition to capital punishment, a change that reverses centuries of Vatican doctrine. The announcement from the Vatican cites an address by Pope Francis, in it, he says the death penalty is an attack on, quote, the dignity of the person. The church previously allowed the practice under extreme circumstances only, but that began to change in the late 1990s. So interesting to see the ebb and flow of being for and against it. And of course, Donald Trump restarted federal executions and seemed to be racing to kill as many people as possible before the end of his term. Can you just unpack what happened in the last few years? Absolutely. So Donald Trump and his Department of Justice, particularly under William Barr as Attorney General, decided to revive the federal execution chamber and start carrying out executions. These were largely people that they assumed would not be sympathetic to the public, people who had murdered children, murdered women, people who had participation in white supremacist groups. And Trump did this having spent much of his adult life extolling the death penalty as something that he supported. He took out a full-page newspaper ad to demand the death penalty for the Central Park Five, and then when they turned out to be innocent, didn't apologize for it. And it felt like part and parcel of Trump's effort to wage a culture war, to bring back the signature issue of the 90s, you know, culture wars and carry out all these executions, which were largely people who had come to the end of their appeals. And they were people who were sentenced to death 
under a kind of bipartisan basis in the sense that the laws that allowed them to be sentenced to death were pursued by Joe Biden when he was in the Senate. And the Department of Justice under Obama was also fighting to keep these executions, if not happening, at least sort of on track through the appeals process. You have prosecutors who are fighting these appeals in court to keep the executions on track. So there was a kind of ambivalent stasis around the death penalty where Obama and other Democrats didn't want to pursue actual executions, but they also didn't want to take big political risks by commuting death sentences and by stopping new ones. They still pursued death sentences against Dylan Roof for the South Carolina shootings and against Sarnia for the Boston Marathon bombing. So that ambivalence played out in there being a federal death row of men, and in one case, a woman who were sort of waiting for a president to come along and say, we're going to revive the execution chamber and start these executions up. And Trump delivered on that. And there were 13 executions under his administration. They all happened over the course of less than a year. And Trump, in trying to create this as a culture war issue, I think it had an ironic effect. I think it showed that Americans had, in larger numbers than was previously understood, turned against the death penalty. That once they were confronted with the details of these cases, they felt more uncomfortable with these executions than they maybe had thought. So we heard stories about Brandon Bernard being executed for a crime that he played a very minor role in. Mr. Bernard said, you know, I, I try every day to make up a little bit. I know it'll never make up for what I did, but I'm trying to add some good to the world. Bernard's lawyer telling CBS News last week he was a reformed man. He also says there were mitigating circumstances and that Bernard was neither the shooter nor the ringleader of the attack. We read about Lisa Montgomery being executed for a really terrible murder, one that came after years of her own trauma and sexual abuse and mental illness. And all of this, I think, has led to a point where now Democrats are pushing to abolish the federal death penalty. There are bills to do this with widespread support in Congress. You see this real interest in, if not killing it off entirely, at least curtailing it in a lot of states, even in the South. And I think that there's an irony in that Trump, by trying to kind of revive this as a culture war issue and please his base, has actually sort of paved the way for the death penalty's ultimate demise. I think that these executions under Trump will be seen as a sort of final hurrah of this institution that showed just how much of a relic it is for many people. You mentioned before when Joe Biden was a senator having passed legislation that supported the death penalty. What do you think will be different with Joe Biden in the White House? Well, I think that Joe Biden, like many Democrats of his generation, has seen the way that the culture has turned, at least on the left, against the death penalty in particular and mass incarceration in general. It's hard to know what his personal views are. You know, he said that he personally opposes the death penalty now and will work for its abolition, but it's hard to imagine really there being any incentive for him to make big moves on his own without a lot of pressure from the left. And so I think you're going to see over the next year a real effort to pressure him from the left. And this is a kind of signature issue that he can score points with Democrats on. It feels like we've got more momentum. That's how sister Barbara Batista says she feels with the new administration moving in. I have hope that we will make progress when the Biden-Harris administration is inaugurated on the 20th. Um, we expect within the first 100 days for a moratorium. In fact, we expect a moratorium to start on day one. 
I've also heard arguments that he will be getting pressure from the international community, from Western Europe, who he wants to rebuild relationships with in the wake of Trump. And this might be one very, not easy, but sort of small way, along with closing Guantanamo Bay, that he can maybe signal to the world a renewed commitment to the kind of Western European consensus on human rights. I also think that there's a question of whether the debate about the federal death penalty is purely framed as a left versus right fight because, of course, Democrats have control of Congress, but it's not very strong control. And so there's a chance that they could push through these bills and get a signature. But there has been a real decline in support for the death penalty among conservatives. And so I'm watching to see if there's a real effort to reach across the aisle. Just as conservative legislators in Congress embraced the First Step Act and gave Trump a victory in that regard by allowing him to sign it. I'm watching to see if conservatives in Congress are brought along on this issue and whether it will be passed as a kind of bipartisan measure of turning a corner for the criminal justice system. How many people are on death row right now? Throughout the country, I want to say roughly 2,000. At the federal level, there's roughly 50. So in Congress, if they pass a bill to abolish the federal death penalty, this depends on if it's retroactive, but this would only really affect roughly 50 people on federal death row. The death penalty is primarily carried out at the state level. And the biggest death rows in Texas and California will continue to be there and vulnerable to execution. And it will take a lot more than this congressional action to really turn the corner there. Well, let's say the death penalty is abolished. Let's say we do it on a federal level and even on a state level. In your view, in your opinion, what do you think should be done with the people who are on death row? That's a great question. I think that people on death row, many of them are many, many, many years past the commission of their crimes. And many of them have lawyers who have been making arguments that their convictions were tainted in various ways, that their defense lawyers at their original trial didn't have all the information they needed or didn't do enough investigating themselves, or that there were terrible issues of mental illness that were never really discovered at trial. And I think that the court should look at these cases very carefully and consider whether it's just for these people to still be pushed along towards execution and whether the people that we're executing really are the same people that committed these crimes. I don't feel like I have the personal answer for what we should do with all of these cases, but I think it's something that we need to confront as Americans. Like, I think that it's something that is very easy to kick the can down the road and blame politicians and blame prosecutors and bad defense lawyers who didn't do their jobs early on. But this is a policy that we all embraced as a country. The polls showed that well over half of us used to support it and still half of us support it. And I think that in each of these cases, we really need to sort of take ownership of what we're doing and really decide, do we want to keep the death penalty and do we want to actually execute all of these people, these hundreds and hundreds of people on death rows around the country? Or is this just symbolic? And have we really just been kicking the can down the road and offloading responsibility? It's interesting because it really is difficult. Some of my dearest friends, some of my favorite people in my life lost loved ones in mass shootings. And broadly, they support the shooter is being executed. So what would you say to the families of victims when it comes to their support for capital punishment? I don't think there's anything that I can say as an outsider to that pain that 
would really mean anything in the sense that I can't inhabit it. But I do think that in a lot of these cases, you have a lot of victim family members and they don't all have the same opinion on what should happen to the perpetrator. Some of them feel that having this person sentenced to death and years and years of appeals and having the legal process thrust the case repeatedly into the media is traumatizing in its own way. This was a story I heard from victim family members while doing the research. And a lot of them also felt like they were political pawns from big city prosecutors or governors trying to score points off their pain by pursuing the death penalty for these perpetrators. That said, I can see a future in which the death penalty is sort of winnowed slowly and cases of getaway car drivers are pulled out of death row and cases of people with severe mental illness are pulled out of death row. There is not now nor will there ever be a time when it is appropriate to execute a seriously mentally ill man. For we need to open our eyes to the effects of mental illness. And it will not go away just because we don't like it and just because we try and get rid of it. We're still having a debate about these mass shooting cases in which not just political, but kind of human gut instinct is to say that the punishment should be more severe than even life in prison for these people. These are, I think, the really hard cases that we have to actually talk about at a moral level. I think we find it very easy to look away from in the sense that it's easy to say, oh, let's like let the prosecutors and jurors worry about that. But we as a society have to really make these decisions together about what is justice after such a tragedy like that. a little bit about the racial disparities and how it's applied. Sure. So the sort of prehistory of the death penalty that we have today is very bound up with the Jim Crow South and with lynchings. I read about a case in the early 1900s in which a man was accused of murder. He was a black man and he had a trial, a legal trial over his life, and it lasted four hours. And while he was on trial in the courthouse, this was in a small town called Center, Texas, he could hear the saws and the hammers outside the courthouse because they were building a scaffold already to lynch him, essentially. There were, of course, many cases where there wasn't even a four-hour trial. There was just a mob that abducted a man accused of murder, perhaps guilty of murder, perhaps not, and lynched him. Over time, you see that in some of these states, even in Texas, there's a real discomfort, especially among political leaders with mob justice. And so they take executions indoors. They build electric chairs and carry out executions behind the walls of the prisons. And then fast forward to the 1970s, and even the electric chair feels barbaric, feels too much like a spectacle, and they adopt lethal injection, and they try to make the death penalty look as clinical and dignified and distant from the mob as possible. One scholar famously refers to these executions as anti-lynchings, right? That they're making every effort to make it not look like a lynching in response to lynchings. So it, you can tell that there's a historical precedent there, right? And as the death penalty stops 
being connected to lynchings in a visual practical sense, it also, the racial dynamics of it become kind of submerged. So where in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you were seeing very bald statements by prosecutors about defendants being black and very bald efforts to get black people off of juries. There was a shift in which race kind of goes underground in the system and the likelihood that you're sentenced to death because you're black is still a little higher throughout the 80s and 90s, but it's especially high if the victim is white. And if it's a white woman, if you account for all the other factors, the likelihood that you're going to get executed is much higher. The death penalty is always a subjective system in the sense that prosecutors are making decisions, jurors are making decisions, judges are making decisions. And each of those people can, in those individual moments, believe and believe authentically that race is not a part of the picture. It's not a part of their decision making, that they're not sentencing someone to death because they're Black. But when you look at the numbers, you start to see that race does play some role, whether it's implicit bias. And whenever you have a series of decisions that are made in the subjective way, all of the worst impulses of our society, whether racism or sexism, start to come out. And they may be hard to parse in any individual case, but you can see them in the aggregate. Today and historically, Uh, Race is the greatest predictor of who gets the death penalty in the United States. It is that last fail-safe for white supremacy uh, that says that ultimately white life must be valued uh, above black life. In Georgia, you're 11 times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim is white than if the victim is a person of color. You're 22 times more likely to get the death penalty if the uh, offender is black and the victim is white. Sometimes you actually can see them very directly. I found cases in which expert witnesses went on the stand and predicted to the jury that the defendant was more likely to be dangerous in the future because he was Black or because he was Latino. And these are really, of course, obviously egregious. Even Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, said of one of these statements by an expert witness, the quote was, some toxins can be deadly in small doses, that no matter how small the racist language, it's too much. And those trials were unconstitutional. But Those are just the ones where it pops out in direct language, right? And plenty of other cases where the racial language is very coded, where you hear prosecutors say something like, we're losing the streets to them. Don't you feel afraid to go out at night because they are wreaking havoc in your neighborhoods? And they don't say anything about race, but in an era of, especially the 80s and 90s, when there was a lot of kind of racial coding, a lot of dog whistles in the political media, You can see how race kind of infects these cases in a very quiet way and gets so quiet that it can be hard to hear unless you're really digging at the trial transcripts and trying to understand how race plays a role. And I think that's why it's so important that we continue to call out things like dog whistles and the code so that people can train their ears to hear those things no matter how subtle they are, although none of that sounded subtle to me. But I do think it's really important that we make this part of our education system as activists, especially to be able to cue people into that kind of dialogue, I think is really important. And I know the answer to the next question, but I'm just going to ask you anyway, have we ever executed an innocent person? I feel confident that 
the evidence is there that we have executed someone who is innocent. In any particular case, it's an incredibly hard thing to prove because obviously the person's ability to talk about the crime is over, but the legal system just moves on after these cases. And there might be a fierce debate about innocence at the beginning and even all the way up to the time of execution, but you just repeatedly see everyone move on after the execution happens. I have found a handful of cases in Texas and elsewhere where the evidence is incredibly compelling and scholars have went and actually done the work after the fact and made what I think any reasonable person would consider a very compelling case that an innocent person has been executed. What was shocking to me in this research was how many times I stumbled on a case that no one had heard of before and that when just hearing the details from a defense lawyer 20 years after the fact, I found chilling and all the more chilling for the fact that it didn't seem like, you know, if you Google this case, like anyone had really written about it before. So in the book, I talk about a case of a man named Eddie Ellis. In 1993, he was executed for murdering an old woman at an apartment complex. He was a maintenance man at the complex. And at the 11th hour, with just days to go before his execution, a investigator who was still a college student working for defense lawyers met with a woman at the complex and the woman helped her unearth a handwritten note in which a different man, this woman's now deceased husband, confessed to the crime and confessed to letting the other guy go down for it and the guilt that he felt about having done that. And these defense lawyers submitted this evidence to the courts at the 11th hour and the court said, you all have a reputation for throwing this last minute stuff in and we just don't believe you. And again, they didn't want to prove that he was innocent in this moment. They just wanted to stop the execution so it could get hashed out in court and they couldn't even get that. And the fact that I just stumbled upon that story while interviewing a defense lawyer 20 years after the fact, this was not one of the cases that was written about when the New Yorker, the New York Times, it was just this one-off war story by a defense lawyer. It suggested to me that there might be a whole kind of ocean of cases that we don't know about. Tell us about the Marshall Project and how my listeners can support your work. Sure, thank you. So the Marshall Project is a nonprofit news organization. I used to say small, but we're not that small anymore. That covers the criminal justice system. We cover courts, policing, injustices and problems in the system, but also solutions and kind of fresh ideas about what to do in the future. And our website is themarshallproject.org. A lot of our reporting appears in other publications like the New York Times and the Atlantic, and people can see our work there. Just search for us there and on Twitter. I'm also on Twitter at Maurice Shema, and we're constantly putting out information about the criminal justice system. Finally, what gives you hope? I think what gives me hope is in all of the cases I reported on and all of the people that I interviewed, there was a sense that if we do the hard labor of humanizing people, that there will be a more humane system that comes out of that, that the work pays off and it doesn't pay off necessarily in the moment and it can take a really long time. But when you really drill down and spend a lot of time on these subjects, you can see what kinds of seismic political shifts happen over time. And regardless of your views on the world, just the fact that this work that can seem so daunting and futile in a day-to-day way actually has an effect in the longer duration of history, I think has given me a lot of hope. Well, Maurice, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all the work you do, and thanks for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. Really great to be here. I don't think the question of capital punishment in this country can be answered by asking, do people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed? I think the threshold question is, do we deserve to kill? 
For every 10 people we've executed in this country, we've now identified an innocent person who's been released. It's a shocking rate of error. We would not accept that kind of error in many areas of life. If for every 10 apples, a one would cause you to die if you bit into it, if that were the case, we'd stop eating apples. We would not allow uh, supermarkets and grocers to sell things that were this lethal, and yet our justice system continues to tolerate these horrific error rates. This is such a hard topic, and it's one we often talk about in the abstract. It's easy to oppose the death penalty when it doesn't directly affect you. It's a lot harder to oppose it when someone you love is the victim of a horrible crime. That's exactly why we need to make it a matter of law. People I love are hoping for the conviction and execution of someone who murdered their family members. And if I'm being all the way honest, a big part of me wants to see this person dead too. Hurts to say that, but at the end of the day, there is no way to eliminate some doubt as to an individual's culpability for a crime. We don't know and we can't ever know the events which led a person to commit some terrible act. Were they capable of doing something different? Is our law designed for vengeance? The answer to both of these questions is no. And so we can't. We just can't allow the pain of the victims and their families to be the justification for continued killing in their names. As much as that breaks our hearts. You know, at the end of the day, the capital punishment and eliminating it is not about the perpetrators. It's about us. I think a lot about the surviving Boston Marathon bomber. He's a truly evil man whose victims include a child. He doesn't deserve to live out his life. But we deserve the knowledge that he is withering away in a cell confronted every day with his complete failure to break a city and a nation. We deserve to know that he is there, forgotten and useless, every single day of his miserable fucking life. We are better than he is. We are better than all of the killers and murderers. And since we're better than they are, we have to act like it. We need to end the death penalty. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 